So we have to have a unified effort together. So no matter where we go, we'll feel at home. So we go to Oshkosh. Well, they don't do it like they do in Sacramento. The hell with them here. Don't let's have the man have that chance. Let's make it like AA all over and stick to the simple principles of the book. Now, those are my personal opinions. And that's why it's so grand to see the central office. I think it's going to be the real stepping stone of bringing together, because I do know throughout California, you have a reputation of being up here of factions. Of course, we have factions every place. But they're not as, clo as clearly aligned as they seem to have been thought of up here. I know I'm talking as an outsider, it's none of my damn business. But I can feel a difference of talking with people. I've met both people. I don't know who's on what side. I know there's factions have been. I don't know well, who's on. It don't make a hell of a lot of difference. But I think you're over that now. And I think you'll be surprised to see the older people come back. You'll see the better attendance. You'll see the more interest being taken. It's been that way all throughout AA. So, so much for unity. <coughs> First, I'd like to qualify myself as a little bit of a historian on this thing. I came in in January 38 in Washington, D.C. I was pushed in by circumstances. I didn't ask the AA. That's another story. But anyway, I ended up by going to New York. And I met two people there. Bill uh, Wilson and Hank Parkhurst, who were the two people that actually did the physical writing and promoting of the book. I was with them closely for the next two years. I think I saw Bill and Hank at least once a day during those two years, or at least uh, when I was in town, I was doing a little traveling towards the end. So a good deal of this stuff I saw on the ground floor or heard from them when it was fresh. I wrote it down seven or eight years ago, and I tried to keep it as simple and as quick as I can to give you a digest of how come we is what we is today and how we, this thing was formed so much against the will of all of us, against any idea. I always say in AA that AA today is nothing like what it's going to be 10 years from now. I haven't the slightest idea what it'll be, and I don't think anybody knows. But it'll be better AA. It'll be improved AA. It'll be better for the new person, and that's the person we want. They, after once we've had inoculation in AA, our responsibility is the new person, the person that don't know. So you have an opportunity to get well, like we are trying to do. So that is my being around in those early days, is my reason for saying a, a little bit about the historian thing. But to go back from the hearsay, that was in January 38. I had my last drink six weeks, months later, in June the 15th, 38. So you don't get mixed up on these dates on my birthday. <laughs> but. To give you a quick digest of the happening things, try to look at this AA thing as sort of a fellowship mansion or center being built from the ground up, the excavation and so forth. And to see how this thing has been growing, how we're pulling it together, 
and with the final thing of the third legacy of putting the roof on so we are self-contained so nothing can upset us and break up this unity of thinking just think what the churches would like to have done to be able to do to hold themselves together what we're trying to do we the most rugged people in the world are the ruthless that cut through life and think of nobody and together we're unified it's, it's a wonderful feeling to think we can get along with each other and work together God, one thing is lucky, we have to or else we die but to get back at the starting of this thing a little bit of the excavation take you back to 182 Clinton Street, Brooklyn, New York November 34 Bill was on his last binge He'd been in Towns Hospital three times that year, and Towns had told him the last time that it wasn't much chance of him, that he had a wet brain and no recovery. He gets a telephone call from an old school friend of his that he drank with many times and got in much trouble with, Abby Thatcher. Bill invited him over, and he came over sober. He'd never seen Abby sober before. Abby had been in one nut house after another. He seemed to be happy. He seemed to be contented. Bill asked him what happened. He wasn't. Bill was broke. He'd been a millionaire broker and was down flat. About to lose his house. Abby said, I have got religion. The way Bill tells it, it's like the guy hit him in the face with a cold fish. Well, he's gone wacky on religion now. That's even worse than this booze he was in. But anyway, he's a good old friend, and the bottles will last a little longer. So he continued to drink. Asked Abby what they did in the Oxford group. Very simple. We try to help other people, share our tr troubles, talk ourselves out, and be useful. And Bill, of course, gave me old baloney. Well, that's the old religions. They've been doing that for years. Same old root, root, routine, the hell with it. And continued his drinking. A week or so later, he ended up in Towns in DT's, Towns Hospital. This is an interesting point that came up at this time. Bill was in this room, these delusions, the wheels going around, as we all know. Her Dr. Silkworth talking to Lois outside the door. Silkworth said, well, I don't think he'll ever leave this hospital again. I think he's gone. His brain's gone, liver, everything is shot. He hasn't got a chance. Bill had heard that, and something hit him like a flash of lightning. That's screwball, Thatcher. Maybe he's got something. And he said he went through a terrific delusion, a build-up, a wind floating through him. We always call it his Bill's hot flash. <laughs> he called Silkworth in and he said, Doc, I don't know whether I'm going crazy again, or whether I'm going crazy or what. He says, I don't want to drink again. I got something. I don't know what it is, but I got something. Dr. Silkworth says, I don't know what you've got, Bill, but you better hold on to it, Bob. You haven't got anything else. That was the beginning. Bill didn't get out of bed for weeks there, stayed in the hospital.
talked to the other drunks there. He's trying to start there. Of course, the drunks in towns are not very affable type. They're all millionaire drunks. Then he met Eddie afterwards and got out of the hospital and started going down to the Oxford Group Mission called Calvary Mission, where they had a lot of poor, broken-down drunks that they were using for menagerie. And the solar amount do-gooders, you know, that they were doing in a lot of these missions in those days, or still do. So Bill would go down to Calvary Mission, come back and talk to the drunks in town's hospital, stayed in there for three months, afraid to walk out of the place. Finally, he goes on to Royce, continues these visits weekly, daily practically, and he's staying sober. And he has a chance to go back into the market. And he's on a big deal and goes to Akron. The deal falls through in Akron. And he always thought back in New York as a last resort. If I can talk to another drunk, I'll feel better. So he was in the Portage Hotel in Akron, Ohio, pacing the car, deciding whether to go into the bar. Saw the church directory there. Decided he would call the the preacher's on this directory and try to find out if anybody belonged to the Oxford group there. That's the only thing he knew is the drunks that were in the Oxford group in New York. So he finally got a hold of a gal named Henrietta Seidling, the rubber Seidling people. And Henrietta said, hold, I hold it, Mr. Wilson, and said, I think I have just the man for you to talk to. I will come down and pick you up. Came down, picked Bill up, took him out to where Ann Smith, Dr. Smith's wife. This was on Mother's Day, 1935. Bill was on this binge that time. I mean, Bob, Bob Smith, Dr. Smith, who was a co-founder of AA, was on this binge. <coughs> and was, it didn't get into quite late. Bill waited for him. He finally came in, as the old expression says, potted with a potted plant on Mother's Day, <laughs> and fell flat on the, on the porch. Bill picked him up, and Annie took him up to his room. Annie said to Bob, he said, Bob, here's a man who's an alcoholic who hasn't had a drink for six months. He's got an angle. He's got an idea. He wants to talk to you. Bob brushed him off and said, nuts, I've talked to these drunks and these reformers. I've read everything there is in medicine. Nothing's doing any good. What the hell with it? But I will talk to him 15 minutes. He did talk all that night practically. They start comparing notes. And Bob started catching fire. <coughs> so he stayed there, built at Bob's house for two or three days. And then Dr. Smith had to go to Atlantic City for a convention, a medical convention. And the good doctor gets back around the middle of June, pour him off the train, drunk again. That was Bob Smith's last train, June the 15th, tonight. They're having the 22nd anniversary in Akron. That's when he got off the train, and Bill took him in and nursed him back. And Bill stayed in Akron for six months. 
And they started visiting hospitals in Akron, talking to drugs, taking them to the Oxford Group meetings. And two months later, number three man came into AA. We had no creed. We had the four absolutes. It was a very mixed up deal. Nobody knew who was doing what. All we knew was that as long as we were holding on to each other, we were staying sober. One of us got away, we were goners. So the number three man was Bill Dodson. That was a couple of months later. Bill Dodson died about two years ago. Never had another drink from that night. He had been in straps when Bill and Bob saw him in the hospital. A well-known lawyer in that, in that town. For six months, nothing else happened. They brought talk to a lot of people. A lot of people got some angles that came back years later, a month later, but nothing happened. So Bill had to get back to work. He goes to New York, goes back to New York. Starts visiting Hound Hospital, the mission, the, the Oxford mission, backwards and forwards. Finally picked up the number two boy, Hank Parkers, in New York. Well, Hank is a different breed. As you all know in AA, we're all promoters. But this guy promotes the promoters. <laughs> he was a fireball. I've seen a lot of men in my life, but I've never seen a pressure man like Mr. Parker. Mr. Parker was sales manager for Standard Oil in New Jersey. One of these high-pressure boys who had been in the Mexican oil situation when they were strong-arming down there. So he really knew his way around. He was a rough man. It's a quite an interesting story how it happened, how Hank happened to get in town lost him, but it's another story. Anyway, so that was the end of 35. They had exactly four people, five people, or four people, two in Akron, two in New York. Bill would run over every few weeks to Akron, Bob would run over every few weeks to New York, sort of recharge their batteries. And of course, everybody that came in those early days were the babies of either one of the two, Bill or Bob. So then comes 36. And in the whole of 36, nobody really stayed sober and followed through at all. No recoveries at all. We'd have them to come up for two or three months. But we weren't getting anywhere. We were mixing up these rugged individualists with these damn plastic Oxford groupers. And they didn't seem to mix too well together. <laughs> And in this time, Bill uh, was taking people into his home. In a year and a half, Bill took 75 drunks into his home to sober up, to taper off. And in the whole time, not a one of them stayed sober. He got personally involved with them. He was going to personally fix these people up. Well, of course, we've learned now that the last person in the world you can help is the person you get personally involved with. You have to be impersonal in AA, it seems. It's the tough point. The ones you want to get well the most are the ones you can do the least for. They have to do it for themselves. The guy you tell can't make it is the guy that makes it. <laughs> so they tell you, he took 75 people into his home, wet nursing, driving about, taking them to hospitals, giving them a little front money, anything he could do. Two of them committed suicide in his home. One stole all their clothes at one time. And there wasn't nobody who was done any good. And Bob Smith almost did his dad in in Hackley. 
So then, in 36, there we were going. In 37, finally, one person more came in to the New York group that seemed to hold water. That was Fitz Mayo, the Southern gentleman who did an awful lot to encourage Bill. And all the time, Hank was pushing Bill, let's get out of this damn Oxford group. Let's get into our own. Let's be our own. And Bill felt very loyal because of what Oxford group had done for him in New York to break away. So finally, in 1937, in New York City only, they finally uh, sent a written note to the Oxford group that, the, that they were resigning from the Oxford group. That was never done in Akron or Cleveland. That's why they were a little slower to grab AA on a broad basic basis, I think as we seem to have it most everywhere else in the country. They got a little mixed up with the Oxford group, Bob didn't want to break away too fast. So that's the way it was in the end of 37. We had broken away. We had about 10 people that were going to meetings and only three of them dry over six months. And that was after nearly two years. It's pretty frustrating. In those days, we knew we had something. At least, of course, I came in in 37. I've done my say we knew because I haven't gotten to me yet. Well, I came in in 38. The picture I saw at that time was a sort of a flooding crap king. Uh, you got a new guy in, he was your baby, until you got drunk, and then somebody else got it. <laughs> and you had no chance in the world of getting out from under you. And if he asked for guidance from somebody else, well, that was that was cricket. <laughs> he had to come to you with all his problems, and he had to, you had to tell him all the things to do, even if it was to give you a couple of bucks if you need. You see, you got to remember that us original people, uh, we're quite a select crowd. Uh, we didn't figure anybody was an alcoholic that had not been in a state hospital. Anybody that had to I mean that, that was a, uh, unless you'd been in Bellevue or Gallinger or some of those places up on the East Coast, you couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. Uh, Sanitarians, oh, that wasn't alcoholism, that was just bad drinking. But an alcoholic was a guy on the skid row of the farm. That's because we were, and that's what we had to have. Incidentally, of all those original people that were coming in at this time, the age of all of them was less than 40, with the exception of Bob Smith. But none were under 35, or were under 36. It was between those four or five years there. Nearly all of us had had nice families and were black sheep of that family thrown out. We were unemployable. We had washed out everything. A lot of us had never really done an honest day's work in our lives. Of course, me, I was different. I had work. <laughs> so we weren't getting any place. When I came in January 38, uh, which was nearly four years, uh, no, three and a half years, and just these four or five people, the same people, over and over again, coming and going, wet nursing them. And nothing was happening. And Hank stopped pushing the pressure on Bill. Bill, we got to do something. Let's get some sort of a program. Every group, every fellowship has some sort of a program. Just something simple, maybe a page or two, that we are trying to do. 
we can incorporate the absolutes, but let's change the wording around a little bit. Make it simpler. And let's work together and have closed meetings. Well, when they did break away from the Oxford group in New York, we held a Tuesday night meeting at Bill's home. They, uh, they were sort of about seven or eight men seated around a circle, and Bill Wilson in the center with a little three-legged stool, one of these old antique uh, sewing stools. And Bill would get that, and he would do all the talk, and we would do the listening and answering the questions because he had all the book samples, if anything. And I never forget how Bill used to guide that thing around, this thing while he was talking. Uh, we, we thought we were going to pull that thing apart, but the thing still stuck together. Afterwards, that little three-legged stool started to become a symbol. And uh, you'll find that that's how one of the reasons that the book came along a little later. It was a symbol that AA stands on three legs. It does. It stands on religion, on medicine, and on its understanding fellowship. We need all three legs. Without, any, without, without either one of the three, we are gone. I mean, the thing lost that. So it's a balance. So that was one of the things we were using as a symbol when they started to get this idea of getting the book together. So they finally decided they would write some sort of a pamphlet or something. So the only thing they could think of was that Bill and Bob Smith would write stories of how they had recovered. And that would be the pamphlet that we would distribute to the new people and show them how these two had recovered. At that time, in 38, uh, they both had a, a premier three-year sobriety. And that was a hell of a lot of sobriety in those days. I mean, six months was a real sobriety. Three months was damn good. And uh, so these two chapters were written. And those are the same chapters that are in the AA book today with practically no change. And Hank, the promoter, said, well, these chapters are so wonderful. Let's get this printed. We'll take it up to Harper's. They'll do a magazine article on this thing. And that'll bring us a lot more trunks. And we'll probably get a couple of bucks for this thing. And uh, then uh, maybe where we can get somewhere. We're not getting any place now, Bill, unless we do something. So they go up to Harper's, unknown, and throw these a couple chapters in. And Harper's talked to, to Bill and Hank. Said, Mr. Wilson, if you will write this into a book form with a program of recovery and some stories of some of these boys that are getting well to go along with us to make it a broad story, we will give you $3,000. Well, an unknown author going into a publishing company and getting a guarantee of $3,000 to write a book that had never been written but only a couple chapters, Hank said, boy, those fellows really smell something. They smell a million bucks. That's why they invested $3,000. If it's worth 3000 to Harper's, just think what it is worth to us. They're just trying to get it, to pick up this, this, this hot dough. So we started then and there. Then the wheel started moving. We were in business. We were going to be taken off the hook. We were all going to be back in business again. All have automobiles. There wasn't an automobile in the New York group for four years. 
this was it, this book. So the real idea, I'll tell you frankly now, uh, we were a damned bit different. As a matter of fact, we are much goonier than all the original people than you all that are coming in today. But the real idea of writing this book started forming. We would write this book. We'd sell a million copies. We'd make, we had all figured out what we'd make on it and everything. And then we would take this and put it in the fund. So immediately, now we're going to write our own book. Now the first thing we got to do, we got to have a foundation. Rockefeller's got a foundation. Ford's got a foundation. So we'll have an alcoholic foundation. So the alcoholic foundation was put in business after the writing of two chapters, Bill and Bob. The alcoholic foundation could take money from any place, could open hospitals, drug farms, do anything they wanted to do with no strings. And uh, that was the beginning of General Service Conference. Then they decided, Hank, Bill, Hank particular. Now, Bill, we've got to get this thing separated a little bit. You know, you have these corporations that interlink and so on and so forth. We've got to have a book company. Book company, the Alcoholic Foundation. The dough goes into there finally, which is uh, where the, the Alcoholic Foundation was controlled by Hank, Bill, and Bob. Those three were the three owners of the Alcoholic Foundation. Now, I said, well, we've got to get the small boys in here, and we've got to make them feel useful. So we want to start a book company. And uh, that will be the book company who will write this book. And with the profits from that, we'll throw them into the Alcoholic Foundation and for tax purposes. We have to go all way up in that. So they decided, well, we have to have a book company. We never went into court to do these things. We just formed them and that was it. Uh, so then we decided we'd have the Works Publishing Company. Well, the interesting part was well, where we get the name, Works. Well, Hank's great old expression used to be was, it works. So it became the Works Publishing Company. <laughs> so now we have a publishing company. We have an alcoholic foundation, a non-profit alcoholic foundation, which could do anything, go out and solicit, publish, print, or do anything. And all we had was two chapters. So then we started writing the book. <coughs> the way the book was written was uh, Bill would write a chapter a week. It was made up in three copies double space for changes. One copy would go to Akron, one copy would go to the New York meetings, and one copy would stay in the office. The, uh, the, see, Bill and Bob had uh, uh, automobile polish, which I was general sales manager of, <laughs> and worker, and mixer of polish and whatnot. And uh, they were in that corporation, so that's where the Ruth Hawk was. They would write these chapters. Bill would write them walking up and down. Double space. They would be taken to the Tuesday meeting in New York. Bill would read them to us. We'd all take shots at it. Well, this thing ought to be changed. That thing ought to be changed. So every word in that wordage of the book there was combed, double combed, by alcoholic lawyers. Every loophole. We were taking out anything 
So you can find nothing in the book that says anybody has to do anything. It's the it's it's most remarkable. That's why we all agreed with it. <laughs> it doesn't say anybody has to do anything. But uh, Bill was wise enough to put it in the background, but it seems like more people do better if they do it this way than if they do it that way. Uh, so they could take it either way, but this way looked a little better than the other way. So that's the way these chapters were done. We'd call them over, Bill would take them back, bring them back the final week, the final week, the, the, the following week. The copy would come in from Akron, the changes would be made there, and each copy would be brought down that way. Uh, a lot of the people want to know where a lot of the ideas came from that are in the book, where we stole, as everybody knows, the whole of AA has been trial and error, and we've taken from everybody we could think of to try to use anything that we thought would be useful to help the new drug. The four main books that Bill wrote, in case anybody's interested, they can write these down, where you'll find that nearly everything that's in the AA book and traditions came more or less from these four books. Number one, where we got the psychological approach on alcoholics, came from The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. Richard Peabody had stayed sober by working on other drugs. For 11 years, he died just before AA started. And he died of alcoholism, and in every chapter, he said, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And he had stayed sober for 11 years. But Dick Peabody had missed two things in his book, working with other drunks, telling the new drunk, and the spiritual. There was no spiritual. It was get hobbies, get away from yourself, and so on and so forth. The second book was James's variety of religious experiences. The third book was uh, Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount. And the traditions and the third legacy. Most of that stuff was combed from this believing world by Lewis Brown. Lewis Brown wrote this book, breaking down all religions as he saw them. He's considered quite an authority in doing it. You all that are in the book field, I don't know anything about it. He was a Jew. And he showed the rise and fall of all spiritual groups major spiritual groups throughout history and the fall of those that have failed the fall of those that have failed he could show and trace back to three things and those are the three things you'll see in traditions and third legacy if you look very clearly in them what I always call the three P's the three things that seem to break up spiritual groups is personalities, property, and politics. And those are the things that we're trying to keep at personalities, uh, principles always above personalities. Now it wasn't always that way. The original AA was all personalities. It had to be. We had, uh, we were emotionally saving people. Today, today, it's a more of a practical thing. We know we can't take, the novice can go to see a drunk individually for the first time. It's best to have two of us, two angles on the person. 
it's best to bring them immediately and introduce them to as many AAs as you can so they can see so many different sides. So they won't say, well, I'm not like that guy or this guy, so therefore I'm not one of these things. But he can't say that when you bring him into a room like this or into a larger meeting. So that's why this personality and principles, why it's stressed so much in the traditions and in anonymity. So we finally got the book pretty well together. The original idea of how we financed the book, it was a stock selling proposition. You buy a share of stock for $25. You'd get a book if and when it was printed. You could buy a time payment plan. The voucher with this stock certificate was that uh, Colgate, you'd have bought it at a dollar in 1902, it had been worth $10,000 a share now. They brought up uh, General Electric and a few others. <laughs> and this was your idea to get in here. A book cost about 35 cents to make. We were selling for 35, dollars and I had to look at the big profit. And the book company was made up three ways. Uh, one third owned by Bill, one third owned by Hank Parkhurst, one third owned by 29 of us that contributed $2,800. Neither Bill or Hank contributed a damn cent. All they did was the price. But out of 29 of us, we got $2,800. $1,700 came from one guy selling an automobile. So then we was, uh, we, the original idea was to call this book 100 Men. And that was the thing we were working on through 38 while the book was being put up. That would be the name of the book. Then all of a sudden, one of these damn women got into the picture. <laughs> Lawrence Rankin got sober, and the time the book was getting near the, to completion, she'd been sober damn near a year. He says, hey, 100 men, what do you mean 100 men? 100 men and one woman, if you think. Well, that's a hell of a lot of things to put on a marquee. <laughs> so we decided we made that change at all. So then there was heckling, what are we going to name this thing? As you all notice, the AA book, there's no mention in the original Red Book, uh, Floyd will remember, the word Alcoholics Anonymous in the whole book. There's no mention of groups in that whole original book. All those things were coming after, I mean, the name came after the book was finished. So that's why there wasn't any name in the book. We talked about the alcoholics in the books, but we didn't say anything about alcoholics and nonsense in the book. Maybe in the foreword and on the cover, which were after as over. So then an interesting thing happened, like everything does in AA. These things come from the damnedest particular spots. We were figuring on using exit for the name of the book. Or the way this way out, or the way out. Well, the way that was winning by a long run when we sent somebody down to the Congress to Washington to check up, see how many titles were on hand. There was 12 of them. We thought maybe there not be 13 this way out. wouldn't be good. So we threw that down. And we just pulled a guy out of a state hospital up there named Joe Worden, who had been the founder of the New Yorker magazine. Joe Warren had a wet brain. The hospital didn't think he'd stay up very long. So he got into one of these meetings. It was a very lucid moment. He says, hey, let's call this Anonymous Alcoholics. 
and nobody said anything for a moment. Alcoholics Anonymous. And before you know it, that's where the word came from. And before you say Jock Robinson, Joe Warren went back to the nuthouse and he's been in there ever since. So you never know where these things come from. <laughs> he came out just long enough to give us the word. <laughs> and you'll find a little later on, I'll show you the Hank. Bill would have never done a damn thing. As a matter of fact, this history he's got coming out now, uh, he, that originally was going to be his 10 years in AA. Now he's got about 20. Bill would have never done a damn thing. As a matter of fact, this history he's got coming out now, uh, he, that originally was going to be his 10 years in AA. Now he's got about 22 years in AA. And he's going to come out with this AA is now of age. <laughs> so you see how long it takes him to do anything. But Hank is the guy that pushed this and made this thing. Because he has money in the bank. We've got to get this dough. Get it out. So the idea was this time we had to, we had to label on the book. <coughs> and we were going to sell these million books. Uh, the first year, a million dollars. And then what we were going to do, the original idea was that a person would read this book, go up to the back room, get down on the knees, pray, and they wouldn't drink anymore. Just that simple. And if they had any troubles or felt a little itchy, they'd go and read the book again, and that would pray, and everything would happen as well. Because that happened to Bill and Bob, so it had to happen with everybody. <laughs> it was proof. We had two of them proof that. And then the poor in our fortunes, these psychopaths like you folks around here who couldn't get well on the book alone, well then we would open a string of drug farms across the country. And we even had the plans, the blueprint for those drug farms. We'd have this institutional building over here with a fence around it, and on the inside we'd have our own little cottage. <laughs> And at uh, the uh, end of the day, we'd go to our cottage, and during the day, we'd go and give therapy to these poor drunks that couldn't get well on the book alone, provided they paid a certain sum. <laughs> oh, the therapy there. Well, that was the original idea of the book. We were going to make dough out of it, period. We did want to save drunks. But here we were, unemployable. And you all know the first thing in the world you want to do is get dough in the pocket. And that's the first thing a guy says, yeah, I'll sober up, but how do I get well financially? And we say, oh, that's tough. But uh, we didn't think so at that time. <laughs> so then uh, the book was finally finished in 38. And, uh, but we didn't have any money. We were broke again. The $2,800, we'd gone out and bought the plates to print the book. But we hadn't got a printer to print them, but we bought the copper plain plates. But, and still no money. And then Bill and Bob had, had to use this up to get by on and pay my salary in the in the uh, automobile polish business, which we weren't selling so hot at that time. <laughs> so finally, we got a monolith copy. I have one downstairs in the car. It's a it's a monograph copy of the book. We got this finally finished and published, and there was no name on that when it came out. We were still going to call it Alcoholics Anonymous, but we hadn't quite decided. There were 20 stories in there. Uh, there's only about four of those people living today of the original stories. And uh, six out of those 20 committed suicide. That's terrific. What happened? Florence Rankin, the first gal. So we could have used 100 men there by the time the book came out. <laughs> 
we start passing out these mimeograph or motherless graphs of the books. We bought out 50 of them. The idea was we would promote the book with this. You could buy this motherless copy for three and a half, and you've got a nice spanking clean new book if and when printed uh, for three and a half. So we weren't selling the stock certificates. We're all gone. Nobody was buying those. Nobody seemed to give a damn. And we were in a mess. So we tried to sell these books. And at the same time, we tried to shove them out to a few doctors or places we thought would get interest. And here's another stroke that came along that saved us. Almost killed Bill. A Dr. Howard got a hold of one of these. Chief psychiatrist of the Trenton State Hospital. And he came rushing up to Bill, said, Mr. Wilson, you've written a very fine book, you boys, and I think you got something here. But says to him, he did this on his own, without any coaching from anybody. Bill thought it was a very lousy trick. Here, his baby, this beautiful thing put together and everything, and this man coming up, this screwball, this psychiatrist, not even a drunk, telling him it was all wrong. Dr. Howard said, I know what you've been doing up here. I've heard a good deal about it. He says, all you've got there is the Oxford group. Because what we've done in that model is what they've done. I talk about what I was doing. Well, I was a, one of those boys that was on the outskirts at that time, the most least likely to succeed. And uh, there was a little, there was a few prayer meetings hoping there that I wouldn't succeed. <laughs> the best were down on me. But I was around there a good deal. And I did shoot my mouth off a little bit, and sometimes it did a little bit of good. But Dr. Howard came up and said, Bill, you can't print it this way. It's nothing but the Oxford group. The Oxford group's going down. You cannot tell drunks they have to do anything. You've got to suggest. You've got to say, well, we found we had to do something. So, well, we suggest you try it this way. Well, you do it that way. But make no general demands. Bill locked himself up in his room for five days. He didn't come out of that room. We, we just couldn't get food into him. Here is his baby all being chopped up. Well, Hank, uh, fifth mayor myself did work on him to accept it. And overnight, the changes were made from this book that I have down in the car to the original red book, which we found we had to or suggested or of recovery and so on and so forth. So the whole thing was changed overnight. If that hadn't happened, the book would have flopped. I'm pretty positive. A lot of us can see that picture very now. And then God was God cold turkey, and it wasn't as, as you see him or as you can find him. It was right on the line, and you had to get down on your knees. Even one part of the book that, if you don't like this book, throw it away. <laughs> but that shows you some of the struggles and the growing pains that we went through. And that uh, us original people were no different than the drunks today. As a matter of fact, we're probably a little wackier than those are today. But this divine power seemed to be coming in and doing something about it. Here was this excavating going on. Here was this floor going on on this AA mansion as we sit now. It was all those things we had to go through. <laughs> So the book finally came out in April 1939. We got a hold of a printer to do it on a consignment basis 
He put them in a barn warehouse. And the only way we could get them out was to pay two and a half on them, and then we could go out and sell them for three fifty and come back and buy another. So we took books out that first year, never more than a dozen at a time. <laughs> and we would go out and sell those to YMCA's or anybody we could click on in any way, shape, or form. Then our first publicity. No, an interesting thing that happened that came up. If you all have the red copy of the book, which is the first copy of the book, they have a piece in the back, uh, they have a uh, uh, last chapter in there, it was the Long Endeavor. Well, this is quite a cute one. This is a proof that this thing works, that we saved drops all over the world. Well, one of these monolith copies of the AA book got out here to California. At the end of 38, we were distributing, I'd say, about 50 or 60 of them. We don't know where they all went to. One of them got to an attendant working in a state hospital out here, who apparently was an alcoholic. His name was Pat Cooper. And Pat writes us this wonderful letter and says, I've read your motherless copy. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. And I think it's wonderful. I've had a spiritual release, and I'm seeing God, and I'm talking, and Bill thought, well, here it is, a hot flash 3,000 miles away with just a few words. This is proof, positive, that AA's are, and this thing will succeed, just with the book alone. So the wires start flashing by. We passed the house. We decided we'd have Pat Cooper come in and show himself to the New York group. What an AA had done for him 3,000 miles away. We would show him off as a good example. So this letter he wrote us about how he was straightened out and everything was in the original book. It didn't make the second edition. <laughs> Pat Cooper, I'll never forget, we sent him the dough to make a bus ride. We went down to the Greyhound bus station to see him. Everybody got off. It was Hank, Bill, Fitzmayer, and myself. All down there, there was this new guy coming at 3,000 miles across the country, cure of alcoholism, and sober three or four months. Everybody got off the bus, there wasn't any bus, all left on the bus. And we asked the guy, is that all you got? Well, he said, I got one guy in the back there, he's under the seat, and we're going to sleep. That was Pat Cooper. So we never got a chance to show Pat Cooper off to the other boy. He died of alcoholism, right? Then we have Dr. Fishbein, who was going to give us a big build-up in the AMA. He's that time he was Mr. AMA, American Medical Society, about how wonderful thing this was. And he was going to give us this publicity as soon as the book was off the press. So we gave him five copies of the book, a two and a half piece. Hammond and all of how we got it, we don't know. Two or three months later, an article comes out in the American Medical Journal. I meant to bring that with me tonight, and I'm sorry. But it's the only adverse criticism I've ever seen of AA in any magazine, any place at all. It called us a bunch of crap parts of uh, and it was terrific. So that was another boom. I know Leah's Digest was going to review us, and they were going to do this and that for us, and nothing ever happened. And we were broke and flat. Books in the warehouse, couldn't get them out. And then we start selling the book on a seven-day trial. I think on the original cover. (laughs) 
Then about this time, Marty Mann came in. You all just come back from Watsonville. Well, Marty did an awful lot for us. He, she came in in uh, the middle of 39. And in uh, the meantime, Florence Rankin had died of alcoholism. And she was the only gal coming at that time. She was very antagonistic towards us in the first few meetings, but she gradually came in. And she did an awful lot in those early days of getting the public to help us and the medical profession around the New York and the Eastern section. I'm taking too long on this build-up of this, this basic stuff, but some of it's quite interesting. Uh, one of the interesting things was we had one fellow, that, uh, Morgan Ryan, who was going to get us on We the People program. And he'd been sober three months, and We the People at that time was the best program on radio. But we were worried about Morgan. We had to, uh, we knew three weeks in advance, so we had to live, sleep, and every day eat with Morgan to see that he didn't get drunk to get him there in time to talk on We the People. That was our first radio program. He spoke five minutes how he'd recover from alcoholism as Alcoholics Anonymous, gave address of where they could find a book, but nobody seemed to be interested. You see, there's never been, there weren't any, hardly any books written on alcohol before AA. They, there were only two types of drinkers. They weren't alcoholics. They were dipsomaniacs if they had a couple of bucks. And if they were broke, they were just bums. There weren't two different types at all. Alcoholics was, it was not considered nobody even. As a matter of fact, in the book, we stress that once a drunk, always a drunk. Uh, we didn't have any idea that was true. We were shooting fine, and the U.S. Health didn't even know it. It was never known until AA book came up, that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Now, I can prove that very simply, that we went to Johns Hopkins, we went to Menninger, we went to U.S. Health, we went to Bellevue. When we first talked to them, oh yes, we've got some recoveries that are back now drinking normal. But every one of them that investigated, there wasn't a one found. So it wasn't until the Yale group discovered that through our coercion and Marty's that did a tremendous amount of help. And nobody will know what Marty did in those early days. <coughs> then the third group came into existence. We had Akron and New York. The third group was Cleveland. A Clarence Snyder who had been gotten his AA in Akron through Bob Smith, decided there were a few drunks in Cleveland, something ought to be done about it. So they got a guy named Larry Jewell with one lung. And he'd been dry three weeks. And he wrote the first AA pamphlet. Do you know what that first AA pamphlet, do you remember the one, Floyd, we had with the big AA on the white cover? We call that can opener. The first pamphlet came from seven articles that were written for the Plain Dealer newspaper in Cleveland. This drunk that had only been dry three weeks wrote these articles about Alcoholics Anonymous with three weeks' experience. And of the 20 people that were in, in uh, Cleveland at that time, those articles brought in 500 alcoholics inside of three months. That group ran from 20 to 500. So then we, the articles are so good that so we incorporated them as our first pamphlet. Do you remember that, Floyd? 
We didn't change that pamphlet till six, seven years ago. So that was our third group. And then immediately overnight it became our largest group. Then Bill, through a case of circumstances, had gotten friendly with Dr. Richardson. Dr. Richardson was the spiritual advisor of John D. Rockefeller Sr., who got him into the Baptist church just before he died, and uh, has been the guy that has run the, the, uh, the uh, religious contributions that have been worked out through Rockefeller. This was way back in 1939. And Bill was going up talking to Richardson all this time, trying to get Rockefellers to get interested in, in this bunch of drunks. And uh, Bill and Hank would go along, and the old conversation would end up, I could hear him, I never went to these meetings, but I heard tell him, uh, Hank would say, well, all we need is a few bucks. And Bill says, all we need is a spiritual backing of Rockefeller. And the backwards and forwards were closely, both had the dough at it, but Bill was trying to be a little more diplomatic. <laughs> but they, they took an awful interest in us. So at the end of 39, after a lot of these meetings, gathering backwards and forwards, uh, they decided they'd have a dinner at the Union League in New York. This was around February the 1st, 1940. Rockefeller invited 200 of the most powerful men in the country to come to this meeting. Amongst them was Wilkie, Young of GE, I think. Well, they had all the biggest men, Sarson of Ford, all the biggest men in the country there, people that he worked with on big deals in previous years. 60 of them showed up. And I believe that uh, the publicity man that set up this this uh, deal had estimated there was a three billion dollars worth of money in that uh, in that reading that night. There were sixty of these men there. They didn't know what they were coming for. All Rockefeller had done was to say, "This is John D. Jr. Uh, to meet some friends of mine." And they came to dinner, and the sixty of us met. And the 60 of them met eight of us AAs. It was Bill, Bob, uh, Morgan Ryan, myself. I think Marty Mann was there. I'm not quite sure. And they had each one of us at one of these tables, and a book was placed in the middle face down with a label so it couldn't be seen uh, without the cover on. And then... Uh, Nelson Rockefeller got up because John D. was sick that night and he couldn't show up. He said, gentlemen, we want you to meet an interesting group that we think is well worthwhile that you know. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous and I want you to hear the founder and the co-founder tell what they're trying to do. So Bill and Bob got up and told their story. Then Dr. Foster Kennedy, chief of the Sakai, at that time he was president of the Psychiatric Society of America and also Rockefeller's personal physician and psychiatrist, got up and said what he'd seen. As a matter of fact, he's the one that brought Marty Mann into AA. And then uh, Dr. Fostick, Riverside Church, got up and said what he'd seen. And it was a terrific meeting. And uh, at the end, Nelson Rockefeller got up and said, Now, gentlemen, 
this is a different situation than we've ever asked you all to meet before. All these times that you've come together here, it's always been to finance or do something. But this is one group that needs no money. And the bill said afterwards, and we saw the three billion dollars start walking out. <laughs> we thought we were fixed with the Rockefellers behind us. But he said, John D. has just told me, my father, Nelson, was saying, that he will give $1,000 a year for the next five years to help these boys run their central office here. But we think money is the worst thing in the world for this group. Well, of course, the rest of them were tapped at that meeting. If John D. could give a thousand, well, Owen Young could give a hundred. <laughs> so the whole thing was sliced down. We got $2,500 from that group, which Bill and Bob lived on for the next five years. Incidentally, that was all paid back to the Rockefellers. And we are the only group that have ever gotten money from the Rockefellers, any spiritual group, that have paid back every solitary cent. But it was something we needed. And he allowed his name to go out on press wires that night. Oh, that Reverend D. Rockefeller says that Alcoholics Anonymous is honest, it's right, it's good. Come in and buy some. And that was a hell of a lot greater than anything they could have given us that night. I often wonder what that one piece of publicity some of you all saw those, that article that came out in Time magazine on it was terrific. Because the Rockefellers have never, I don't think you've ever seen them put themselves as a group on a spot like that, but they have. So then things started happening in the first part of 40. We had this okay of the, of the Rockefellers. Well, then we all start shooting from all over the corners. Larry Jewell, who had written these articles for the Plain Dealer, he goes to Houston, Texas. He started the Houston group. Started all the Texas groups, as a matter of fact. Fitz Mayo, he starts migrating to Washington, D.C., immediately a group there. I started that. I left New York, first part of 40, I go to Philadelphia. We got the Philadelphia group started. Then they, uh, uh, quite an interesting fellow went out of out of the uh, Cleveland division, a, a Jewish fellow named Meyerson, big, heavy-set, greasy type of Jewish boy, sold Venetian blind in bars all through the South. He started all the Southern groups, got these Southern gentlemen together, carried the measures from one down like Johnny Appleseed, and got these groups started. All this happened in about six months. And that's why I say these two, two groups to 110 in just a little over a year. It was terrific. And how the drunks were traveling all over the country, which they're still doing. Then, and then Kay Miller, who came out with the first book out to Los Angeles, and was a forming of the first group out there, which you all are more or less probably shot out from, and from, uh, from San Francisco. So everything was going hunky-dory. We were going to help that for election. This anonymity thing didn't mean a thing except to the new person. We were all on the soapbox. We were all shooting our mouths off any time we thought it might be a buck in it or might help us to get a job or whatnot. Uh, Bill and Bob's name were in the paper every place. It was anonymity for the new person. 
but not by surprise, as these people that we do that knew. So we were on soap boxes and we were doing this and that, and we had growing things. Forty to forty-four or five, it was every man for himself. They were opening up hospitals, they were incorporating AA from hither to young. We started busting at the seams. Well, you can see we finally got a foundation in. Now, here we are, we're growing up, and we're going in all directions. There's no unity. No man is boss, but we say now the dictators are at every man for himself. Let's make this thing uh, very, very clear and cut. And only the old timers are the ones that are going to tell the story, and we have the right to do it. So we open up drug farms, hospitals, hanging out shingles, going to Yale School, telling us and claiming to be authorities. And we were becoming a mess. We were busting out at the seams. Then in 45, Dale got the idea that something ought to be done to sort of hold us together. So there came the traditions. Without those traditions, we would have probably folded. We could have gone in all directions without any control. Well, the traditions, everybody said, well, traditions are the piece that will end for the East. They say they're there for the people in the West. They're not for this group. We don't need traditions out here. We're all right. That's for those other people across the way or the other group, but not for us. Well, then we gradually, over a period of a few years, we began to see the necessity for the thing of common welfare comes first. We started cooperating. Then come the walls of putting this thing together. Then the great thing that came, the, really the thing that pushed us over the top was that even post. <coughs> How the post article came about was in Philadelphia. We were there at the time. We had two very fine doctors, Dr. Hammer and Dr. Solway. They both had relatives in AA, and they were both terrific members. I mean, they did everything in the world for us there, medically and locally, to get AA well accepted. What we have, they both knew Judge Bach, who was the owner of the Sardine Post. And we asked them to go to Judge Bach and see if he would run an article in the Post about alcoholics and not. So Bill goes down to the Sardine Post with Judge Bach. And they go up to the editorial section. Mr. Fuller, who was ahead of us at that time, says, Sure, we'll be tickled to death to write an article about alcoholics and not. We've been just thinking about getting ready to do it anyway. And we've just gotten the right man for this, Jack Alexander. And he's a wonderful guy. He'll do a wonderful job on telling the story of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, Jack Alexander had then just made a terrific name for himself. He'd broken the Big Hines case in New York. And he'd broken other political cases. In other words, he was a racket buster. And what we found out later that what the part of the reason the Post wanted to run this article on Alcoholics Anonymous was. Well, here was the Oxford group under a new label, with a new racket to work on drugs and to make dough. And this is a chance to bust it wide open. And that was the reason that Jack Alexander was assigned and why we were chosen to go into the Sardine Post. So you could see what we were coming from. But Dill he was, said, Jack, do me one favor. Go to see 10 or 15 of these groups. Don't tell them who you are. Just walk in on them. 
tell them uh, uh, anything you wish to that you're going to write a book or something. Get this information and don't write a thing until you've been to those ten groups. And Jack did a that sort of thing, and he's been the most enthused man. And the greatest article he ever wrote in his life is is the article he wrote for the Sardine Post. That Sardine Post article saw more posts than had ever been sold previous to that time. I don't know how it would rank with today. There were more inquiries for that article than any article before or since. There were 15,000 inquiries uh, in less than six months. Imagine those storming into New York. But we were in business. And we made front page, and we were accepted by Rockefeller. We were accepted by the largest magazine in the country. We were all right. We were good people. Then we were made. That's when I started telling you, we started going, getting beady on this thing, and getting ambitious. And we were going to save the world, and we were going to straighten that religion and all these other things. And so the traditions came on. Then we began to see the necessity for keeping AA at our hospitals, at our clubs. We had to keep separate, uh, to keep at our corporations. We had offers to have an act of Congress to be made on the AAs, just like they've done on Boy Scouts. Today, AA is not even incorporated. The book is copywritten. It wasn't even copywritten until this last book came out. Anybody could have copied the original book without anybody stopping. That's how loose the whole thing has been in May. So when the delegates brought it up, as Floyd and some of the other and Dick will tell you, how can you incorporate a way of living? So it's the AA is still unincorporated. There's quite a few towns in the country that did incorporate, but all of them have turned their papers in. So AA is unincorporated any place as far as I know of today. So then these traditions started holding us together a little bit and building up these walls. And all this time, from 1935 to 48, the whole operation of AA, all the major decisions, no matter what sort of boards they had around New York or any place, were made by Bill and Bob. If they didn't agree, nothing was done. And it was a hell of a responsibility. And they didn't mind it as long as the money was coming in. In 45 and 46, they had a reserve in the New York Central Office of about 300,000. They were sitting high, wide, and handsome. They sold, more, they sold a lot more books in the early 40s there. And they didn't have so much overhead. And they were accumulating. So Bill and the rest of them up there said, the hell with you folks out there. So what happened to the groups throughout the country? They said, the hell with New York. You won't tell us what we're doing. We don't need you. We're self-sufficient. So we start going away. And we don't need New York. We can get along with that. And New York says, we don't need you as long as we're selling our books. <laughs> so the thing became quite a mess there in the latter part of the 40s. Then together, Bill, with Bob Smith dying of cancer, knew the responsibility was going to be on him. Then he started getting a little scared. It's like anybody, if you'd built this baby up and had control and brought it all the way up, 
how can you understand anybody dropping it out with a bunch of these drunks all over the country you don't know and say, well, go on, you boys run. But then Bill hit bottom. Now, Bill will not tell this story, but it is an interesting story to show how AA is forced into the right routine. Sooner or later, I want to be a not. So in 48 and 9, Bob dying, 5% of the groups in the country contributing to New York, they start going broke. And by the end of 1949, they had the less than six months operating expense in the New York office. And uh, in other words, Bill and the old timers hit bottom. Then they decided on the General Service Conference. Taxation with representation. So that everybody could get in the ball game. A lot of us older people were very very worried in those days of what would happen if Bill and Bob both died quickly. What would have happened? I hate to think what would have happened. There might have been North and South AA, East and West, and because uh, we wouldn't allow anybody to lead us like Bill and Bob because they had saved our lives. We couldn't, but there would never be anybody that could replace them. There's no way they're two unreplaceable people. Not the people that are giving you life back. These other people that come later, they're different. They're just the routine. So that going busted broke AA wide open into putting on the completion of bringing this thing to the roof. Now the groups from 5% contributions to New York, it's 65%. We have 7,500 groups now throughout the world. I think we're in about 65 different countries. We've got uh, in about 8 or 10 different languages now. And the interesting thing is that we're going to let these other countries operate their own aid. Uh, England is now completely on their own. They publish their own book. They'll have their own foundation. They'll operate as they seek fit. Who are we to say over in America that AA should be so-and-so over there? They will find. We know now that this divine guidance that seems to come with AA, this group conscience that seems to bring things around to the proper perspectives and to the proper uh, slots that are necessary at the time. We have to have these growing things. We've got to tell them. You'll find new groups starting and they say the same things that happened to this group that happened to the other. It's routine no matter what part of the country. It's always the, the boys in trying to get the boys out and they have boys out trying to get the boys in. <laughs> same old routine as anything. But now we know that there's rotation that nobody in AA is important, but everybody is important. And we know this, that there isn't any, any big shots in AA. As soon as you get important in AA, uh, I mean, there's nowhere to go. There's no money in importance here. There's no publicity. There's nothing you can do except uh, beat your ego to pieces. And the drunks won't take to that very lightly. They start cutting you down. I've been all of us have been kicked out of groups hither and yon, which was good for us. Bill himself has been kicked out two or three times, which is good for him. Those are the things we had to learn because that's, those are some of the things that alcoholics seem to have to learn. So that and now we are getting to the thing that we have an organization, yes, we have it organized to keep unorganized, to keep this fellowship simple, to keep it as it is, to keep out these wrinkles, to keep out this... Uh, different types of AAs, or whether they're spiritual group AAs or whatnot. 
Let's keep it simple. To help the drunk that doesn't know, to give him a chance. Now, some people want to get 12-step housing. They want to do that on the side or clubs, which I'm a great believer in. Oh, that's swell for them that likes it. But these 12-step, these uh, central offices, the groups, the individuals, those are the important things. These steps all the way up and down to hold us close together for these millions that don't have a chance. Well, you can see all these crazy things that we were trying to do. I wish I could express them better tonight. I felt I was running so long here that I didn't want to go into detail so much. But I can't express to you how much, uh, how, how, you hear that these old folks talk about the good old barefoot AA. It's the most ridiculous thing. In the old days, we would go with pills in one pocket, a bottle in the other, take them to hospitals, wash the diapers, babysit, and what did we do? Not a damn bit of good. We did nothing to help the man stand on his own feet. We know now that the drunk is the only one that can do it. All we can do is, is give him balance as he goes along, give him this fellowship, this feeling of wanting, and to be part of us. And it's so much fun to see what we've been through and to see this proof so positive that the group conscience is never wrong in AA. You can bring any question you want up here and you will get, I don't care what it is, it'll be 95% yes or no. There's no split majority in AA. Because of the group conscience, it's this tradition and this thing of our common welfare is the most important thing of us sticking together and making AA more year in, more year out, more similar so that the new man has a better, better, better approach at all times. And I want to thank you all for listening to me so long tonight. I got a little weary, but I, I so enjoyed doing this to let you know that they, these weren't great people, these original people. They were screwballs, just like all of us. And we had to learn. And you folks that have been around here, uh, Floyd, some of these old timers, you're going to look back and see the growth that we've all gone through. I don't think there was a, I don't think there's been an AA, a more militant agnostic than I was when I came in. I'd been to church schools, I was a militant, I mean I'm just a fighting agnostic. And uh, when people like myself can switch and can see, when you see these miracles happening, when, uh, as I started, forgot to tell you, the Hank Parkers who did all these things, made Bill write the book, pushed him along trying to gimmick the whole deal. As soon as the book was finished, he got drunk. Well, if that isn't God's work, I'll eat you. They had to have somebody to give Bill a push. As soon as he ceased to be any use, limited. And they did a little bit of that to me in several spots. But it's been fun to be here, and I hope I haven't talked too damn long. But I am so anxious. This only happens once 